Amen, amen. Morning, folks. So glad that y'all are here. First Peter chapter 4 in our discussion this morning. First Peter chapter 4. We've been studying through the book of First Peter. Those of you that have followed along through the journey, we've been um, looking at what it looks like to heal through the hard stuff of life. And then those last couple chapters, been looking at what it looks like to endure through the hard stuff of life. Because let's be honest, you get through one messy time in life and you make it to the other side, there's another messy time coming down the pipe. It's just how this messy thing called life works. This is, this is why we are desperately in need of a hero, a savior, one to step into our story and calm the storm at times, but other times bring peace, though the storm continues to rage anyway. That's the kind of peace that our Savior Jesus brings. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage people as in the first century of Rome, Christians in the first century of Rome, that are enduring immense difficult times. Um, they are watching their loved ones be martyred. Their city is being burnt to the ground by the wicked Emperor Nero. And yet they continue to be a light for the gospel. They continue to trust Jesus. They continue to grow in their faith in him. And they do so in a way that doesn't leave them bitter at God or at the world around them for what's going on. That's the hope that we find in the book of First Peter. And we are well into this journey. So if what you hear this morning kind of pricks your heart, or if you just want to get caught up, you can always catch up on our website, www.gbc.life. Or you can jump onto our YouTube channel, and all of those sermons are there as well. And I hope that you'll take the time uh, to get caught up with us. But um, while you're finding 1 Peter chapter 4, a few things I want to run by you of, of what I feel to be some significant importance. The first thing I want to do this morning, I actually want to take a moment and just celebrate our worship team. You guys probably don't know this. Um, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You guys probably don't know this, um, but um, represented on the stage, even this morning, and by the way, this is not uncommon, um, we had people on stage this morning leading you in worship from as far north as Lakeland and as far south as Venus and everything in between. Um, they didn't just show up this morning and start winging it from the hip. They traveled a great distance to be here Thursday night for several hours in preparation. They were here this morning between 6.30 and 7 o'clock for some more preparation this service was the third time that they have led uh, the body of believers in worship this morning. I can imagine how exhausting that is, but I wanted to say thank you to our volunteers and worship team members that make it possible for us to celebrate the Lord through music on the weekend. And Phil, he's their fearless leader, the ugly guy with the guitar in his hand, that's Phil. Uh, he's the only staff member that was up on stage today. Thanks, Phil, for your leadership. Thank you, worship team, for loving on us. I appreciate it. That I know it's no small sacrifice in this marathon weekends that we have together. Um, speaking of distance traveled, uh, hopefully some of you guys remember just about six weeks ago, eh, about a month ago, six weeks ago, I had one of our staff members up here, long blonde hair, Lauren, who is our preschool lead. And I, we were talking about how over the last several years she's been feeling God calling her into the foreign mission field. So she was headed over to Africa, which she's there right now with Jake and Jesse and the Overland team going through it, what we call AMT, Advanced Missionary Training, and I'm no lie, this is like, this is like Navy SEAL camp for missionaries. I mean, they like live off the grid, they have to learn how to farm their own food, they have to learn bush first aid, which is, by the way, nothing like the first aid kit that's underneath the front seat of your car. Um, learning how to share the gospel, learning how to build relationships with unreached people when there's obviously a huge language barrier. 
Um, in Africa, that's one of the challenges is every little village and every little tribe all speak different dialects and different languages. So, like, you really have to trust the Holy Spirit to help in that process, hire translators. It's, it's a process to do the work of ministry out there. But Lauren's doing well. I actually talked to Jake, who is um, our partner from GBC, and he is over Overland Mission globally. So all 40 mission bases they have around the world, J- Jake is responsible for that. And he, he and I talked this morning on the drive up, and he was saying Lauren's doing awesome. She's really grafted in well with the team. She has brought a lot to the table by way of leadership, uh, which I was excited to hear. And um, about 20 minutes before he and I talked, he said, yep, Lauren just loaded up with, the other, with some of the other Overland team members into the Hummers or big old like bush vehicles that they have to head out into the middle of the bush to get dropped off for two weeks with nothing but a rucksack on their back to go build relationships and reach unreached people with the good news. So this is her first of three experiences in her training over there. Well, she'll do a couple of weeks of training, and then she'll spend a couple weeks off the grid, in the bush, reaching people uh, with the gospel. So she's out on excursion number one right now. So be praying for Lauren. We're excited for her. Um, Speaking of Lauren, one thing leads to the next. Uh, She was our preschool lead. Uh, and she'll be back, by the way. AMT's three months long. She'll be back for about a year, raising support before she goes full-time into foreign missions. Um, but she is the preschool lead at GBC. She's over our preschool department. And so I was actually wanted to wear our Kids Life shirt today, which represents kinder- or babies all the way through fifth grade. Because today, finally, after six months or however long it's been, we are relaunching our Kids Life ministry. We're going to start small and just, you know, see how it goes. But I bet you there's a couple of parents that hadn't been able to connect with church because they got little ones and they, this is their first weekend back. So welcome back in person. We're glad you're here. Thanks for watching online, but I'd rather talk to you in person. Uh, so uh, we're excited about, about that. Um, I think that pretty well covers it. By now, surely by now. You are in First Peter chapter 4. You could have read probably half the New Testament by the time I finished that intro. So let's read together. Peter's going to be talking a bit about suffering again. We'll talk about it much more in detail next week. But he continues to use this lens of suffering to help us understand the character of God, understand the work that the life of Jesus means to produce in our lives. Um, because he was writing to a people who were suffering. I would suspect that definitely throughout this weekend, but certainly even in this room right now, that there, is, there are dozens of you that are experiencing the hard stuff of life, going through hardship, going through suffering. Peter has a word of encouragement for you throughout this book, and I would encourage you to lean into that and lean into our discussions in that if you've missed anything. But today... The suffering conversation really kind of takes a turn, and he's showing us how God intends to use us, his people, people that bear the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, believe in him as the Lord, as the resurrected Savior, how God intends to use um, these seasons of suffering in our life to be a part of the refining process of our life, to change our attitude and perspective about suffering as a kingdom people. This is how he puts it. Again, we'll talk more in detail next week later in chapter 4, but this specific area of First of Peter, this is what he says, since therefore Christ, as Jesus Christ, suffered in the flesh, okay, 
probably not a surprise to you that this man named Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died a horrific death. He was lived a, a, a great deal of persecution throughout his life here on earth. He went through the hardships and the suffering that life brings, ultimately leading to his death on the cross, a death that we believe as Christians, because the word of God has said so, that a death that paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be made right before God. That is, Jesus, he suffered in the flesh for us and on our behalf. Peter says this, arm yourselves, O Christ followers, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus had about suffering. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does he mean by this statement right here? Peter has a, a, a strange way of wording things. I'll be the first to admit that. Makes it difficult as we translate these ancient Greek words into English sometimes to understand everything that he's saying. So let me do my best, as we will every week, to translate this into 21st century modern speak. Um, here's how I would translate this first little section to you right here. Is, um, I may be the only one in this room, but as a Christian, sometimes I find myself just trying to get the easy wins, the easy victories. In other words, I want as much of what Jesus and the Christian life has to offer while providing as little effort as possible. Judge me if you don't to. I know you're out there. I want as much of this Christian life, as much of what Jesus has to offer through this Christian life while providing as little effort as possible. I want the easy wins. I don't want to identify with the suffering of Jesus. I don't want suffering to be the means at which God transforms me into the likeness of Christ. I don't want obstacles and hurdles in my way. I want them out of the way. As a matter of fact, it's reflected in my prayers because anytime suffering comes or a sense that it might be coming, I ask God, get it out of the way. Get it out of here. I get people to pray for me. Get the suffering out of here. Peter's suggesting to us right here that suffering is not an obstacle to be avoided. It's an opportunity that is to be embraced. What? Somebody's like, I need to find another church. This guy's crazy. Peter's trying to convince a suffering people, hey, suffering's not some obstacle that you need to try to get rid of in your life. It's something that you need to have the attitude of Christ Jesus towards and embrace it. This is the vehicle. This is an avenue of which God is going to be transforming your life and the lives of those around you suffering. We don't like hearing that, though. And he even goes as far to say, he's talking specifically about sin in this little, this little passage of Scripture. He even goes as far to say that whoever has suffered in the flesh, in other words, when you've endured a lot of suffering in the flesh in your lifetime, that he, that person, has ceased from sin. What is he trying to say? Like, if I suffer enough, I'm eventually going to stop sinning? Something along those lines. Here's kind of the idea of what Peter's trying to get across. Uh, it, it reminds me of when I played football in high school, and the doorway from our locker room onto the field had this big sign over the door. You know, we'd slap the sign as we were walking out onto the field. And that sign said this, the more I sacrifice, 
the harder it is to surrender. The more I sacrifice, the harder it is to surrender. In other words, it's like Peter saying that to us, like, man, you've come this far. You've endured the hard stuff of life. Jesus has been faithful to you this long. You've continued to just dredge through the hard stuff of life and faithfulness to Jesus. Why turn back now? The more you've sacrificed, the harder it's going to be to surrender. Suffering, it does. It produces, the book of James reminds us that it's suffering that produces in us an endurance and a patience and a perseverance that only suffering could do. And this is, you ready for this? The work of God. In other words, have you noticed that maybe, just maybe, the suffering that you're experiencing in your life is not something that's in the way of your relationship with God, but it actually has the fingerprints of God all over it? Like it was in his loving kindness that he lovingly, as I often say, pulled the rug out from under you, allowed this issue to take place in your life because it is it has caused you to get on your knees into his presence in a way that you haven't in a long time. It's the loving kindness of God at work, the suffering that we experience. We'll talk a lot more about that specifically next week, what suffering and blessing really looks like. But he goes on to say, now he's talking about sin specifically, that something about enduring through the suffering throughout our lifetimes with Jesus, suffering in the flesh, that it begins to like eliminate our desire to want to go back to old sinful patterns and behaviors. Because we've come this far, I ain't going back. Been through too much now. Experienced the mercy of God too much now, I ain't interested in going back to that life anymore. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on to encourage them and affirm them in saying this. He says, so as, so as to, so that we would live the rest of our time that is in the flesh, no longer for our human passions, but for the will of God. That we would exchange our human passions for the will of God, that we would live our lives not to satisfy ourselves, but as an act of worship to God. This is the work that he is producing in us. Listen, for the time is past, say past, for the time that is past suffices, say suffices. So in other words, the time that's past you in your life that you've already lived, the experience that you've had, the time that has, is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Things like living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. Those people that you used to walk with, used to hang with, used to do life with, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. That debauchery is kind of a general word that just means like living reckless and untethered and unchecked life, unchecked rebellion. In your life. It says they're surprised when you don't go hang out and keep doing that with them and they malign you. They make fun of you. Hey, man, you used to always hang with us. And then you started going to church and stuff, and that was cool for a while because you still come and hang. And then you stop hanging. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? They're maligning you. But Peter says to these suffering people, like, hey, haven't you had enough of that anyway? Like, haven't you had enough dark, sleepless nights? Haven't you looked over your shoulder for enough of your life? Haven't you had enough nights that you don't even remember what you did? Haven't you had enough embarrassment? Haven't you, haven't you wrecked enough relationships in your life by now that you aren't interested 
and walking in those ways and being like that and thinking like that anymore? Haven't you had enough? He said. But, oh, you better believe and you better anticipate when you start to really step out of that and start to walk towards Jesus and the transformation of your life really begins to take place and take root. The people who you used to roll with, the people who you felt have loved you your whole life, but they'd sacrifice anything for you, they're going to be the ones saying, what's up, like where you been? Used to be so cool and now you're like all churchy and stuff. Did you join the choir? Like what's wrong with you? You ain't cool no more, man. That's just life. He says it's going to happen, but he, he, he offers this warning to keep your perspective sober. He offers this warning and says, but they, they will give account to him, that's Jesus, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. A judgment before God here. That is coming one day where everyone's going to have to give account. Is that new news to you that one day you're going to breathe your last breath on this earth? And as the Bible says, it's appointed unto every man to die once, and then the other guarantee is a judgment. He says that those people that were rejectors of God chose not to live a life surrendered, give their life over to him. Those who chose not Jesus as their Lord, there's going to be a judgment coming. And like God is going to put an end to all wickedness and all sin, and everyone will have to stand before him and give an account. And those that are without, without Christ, who rejected him during this lifetime, those who are without Christ will have to stand before him and will have to receive the due punishment for all the account of every sin, thought, word, and deed on their own. No advocate. It's all about you. It doesn't matter that so-and-so talked you into it or it was their idea. You stepped in. You thought that way. You did that way. You're going to stand before God in judgment. But yet there is another group that has an advocate, Jesus who 2,000 years ago exchanged his his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He took on our sin so we could take on his righteousness, so that we could stand before God as holy even though we weren't. Because his work made us that way. His blood didn't just cover up our sins, it washed them away. Cleansed us of all unrighteousness. So that you too, when you stand before God on that faithful day, we stand before that judgment seat. We have an advocate, Jesus, who has already paid for our deepest and darkest sins. That that is as much a warning as that, that is an invitation. If you don't know Jesus, if you never surrender to Jesus, hey, you are on your own, partner. But if you come to a place of acknowledging that he is king and he is Lord and you are not, Man, his grace is sufficient enough for the longest rap sheet, for the darkest past, for the deepest sins. It's more than sufficient for every bit of that. But Jesus is the only way. And then Peter says these really weird words. This is one of the weirdest verses in the entire New Testament. Chapter 4, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. 
The gospel is reached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, is that, is that strange? Is that, it sounds like the gospel got preached to dead people. And they had a chance to, like, receive the gospel and then be saved, almost as if this was like the gospel of a second chance. Um, probably not what this passage means, though there are some scholars that would side with that. I would say the greater volume of biblical scholars, when they look at this passage, and they've interpreted it in light of the full picture of Scripture, it helps us clear up what this passage means if we just read it like this. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are, I wrote this word in, even to those who are now dead. You know, it's challenging translating an ancient text, 2,000-year-old letter into modern English. And it would seem that most of the scholars, at least the ones that I ascribe to and trust, would say that this is him saying that even those who are, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. In other words, they heard it when they were alive, believed it when they are alive, were alive, but now they are just not alive anymore physically. That's why he says they were judged in the flesh the way people are. We all going to die pending Jesus coming back before we die. We're going to be judged in the flesh. That started all the way back in the garden when sin entered the world with Adam, death was imminent, we would physically die, but here's the good news of the gospel, that even those who have died believing in the gospel, they were made alive in the spirit. Man, their life just got really real. And here's the good news of the gospel, just that verse in the scope of all of scripture is, um, by the way, um, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you don't have to wait until you're physically dead to be made alive in the Spirit. The day you declare Jesus as the Lord of your life, you are given His Holy Spirit as a deposit, and you are made alive in Him then. You were born dead in the Spirit. You were born with a sin nature. You were born without hope. And then Jesus stepped into your story, and when you became His, He put His Spirit inside of you, and you were made alive in the Spirit. Now, we needed to know this not just for the scope of long-term eternity here. We needed to know this for the right here and now kind of gospel. Like, what does this mean for us right now, today, and why is that an important distinction for us to make in this teaching? The reason why is because what Peter is about to tell us. You need to know that for those that are in Christ, you have been made alive in the Spirit even while you're walking the face of the earth. Because what he is about to call you into, you would not be able to pull off on your own strength and on your own merit. You're going to need an extra mile of the life of Jesus that's in you to pull this off. Now, we're going to be talking about the enduring love of Christ, but instead of me telling you about it, I'm going to invite somebody else to join me in this conversation because I have seen, over the 10 years that I've known this guy, I have watched this transformation happening in his life. Over these last 10 years, when I met him, he was relatively fresh out of this chapter 4 stuff that Peter's telling us to run from. And over the 10 years that I've known him, I've been watching the Spirit of God transform his life to the point where now, as we get into talking about the enduring enduring love of Jesus, there are few people that I know that there is a clearer expression of the love of Jesus regularly displayed in anybody's life than this guy. He is a living, breathing, gushing Jesus love factory. And the world around, you can't know this guy without feeling the love of Jesus when you're around him. And it's not because of him, because he was lost too. It's because Jesus stepped into his story, and now this guy has allowed his life to be surrendered and allowed Jesus to live his perfect love through him. 
And so let me introduce you to the stage. Lucky for us, this guy's one of our pastors. You don't get to hear from him very often, but you need to hear from him this morning about the enduring love of Jesus. Please welcome to the stage my man, our care pastor, Chris Taylor. Had it mute. No, there, it there we go. Okay. Care pastor, let me bring this chair to you, you as an act of care. Thank you for See, caring for me. The pastoral don't care pastor mm -hmm. brings the chair to the pastoral care pastor, right? Wow, it's working. I'm just playing. I love y'all. <laughs> he does. He does. Uh, what a great opportunity and an awesome opportunity to be able to be in front of you this morning. Uh, has, as I sit here and as I going over this and I was reading, I was looking and I'm like, well, the first verse that I'm going to get out of my mouth as your loving, caring, God oozing, would you say Jesus oozing factory there? Uh, these first yeah. words. Verse seven, the end of all things is near. Yeah. In a loving way, I'm saying that to you. He goes on to say, though, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. What is he saying? What is he meaning there? The end is near. We're not talking, he's not talking a termination. This word telos, end, in the Greek meaning of this word, is, is, it's an end, but it's a completion. It is a consummation. The word termination does not do it any justice. That's not the, it misses out on the whole essence of the word of telos. That's, that's probably an important thing to mention for sure. Because when we say the end is near, or when we hear the words the end is near, we picture a guy standing on a street corner with a sign saying, like, repent. Yeah. The end is And why is it always a guy? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But this word telos, he's not talking about a chronological end of things, like yep. time is almost up. Right. He's talking about an end in the sense of, you said, a culmination or a completion. So in other words, like, he's not saying that time's almost up. He's saying that the work that has been being accomplished has almost been completely fulfilled. It's almost completely complete. Yeah, so in my studying, and I was reminded between uh, these last two services, telos, telescope. Like there's, there's stages of fulfillment to completion. Even as we look through a telescope, we have a target. God has had a target the whole time. That is why he's using the word telos in here. That's why in the Greek or the ancient writings of this is that it's Greek is that there is a completion to this. Like it's just not being terminated and left where it is. He's yeah, like the goal is being reached. The goal has been reached. Yeah. Where do we see this? Straight out of Jesus' mouth on the cross, on the cross. And he says, it is finished. It is completed. A work being made alive in the spirit of you and me. Everything was changing. We weren't having to run to a facility, a building. Like heaven was coming down. The Holy Spirit was going to come down. There was, he was completing the process. And so in those, in those who believe, but also in those who were dead, as Dustin just explained in verse 6, but also a completed work in the lives of you and me, of us, that those of us that are still living, who believe we are a living, that we are a breathing that we are a completed work in Christ Jesus. As we call upon the name, it is not us, but it Christ inside of us. It is a Christ-like mind. Because when we follow scripture, and you're going to see this as we go through this. Peter writes right here, this, like he's, Dustin and, and 
Etienne and Cameron have been reading to you and been discussing the passage with you up to chapter 3. And verse 4, it's almost like he pauses right here in this moment. And this next few pieces of the verses that we're about to go to, you've got to grasp a hold of this. That he says that he has brought all of these components from the Old Testament to their complete fulfillment in Telos. By his perfect, by Jesus' perfect life and death, it was not terminated, but it had come to completion. A consummation, not a termination. You like how I did that? Okay. It is written, it was given to our minds and it was written on our hearts. Made alive in us. That the spirit is inside of us, that lives inside of us. And so he says to us in the next few verses, and he says in the next verse, or in that same verse, he says, be sober minded. Here I'm going to tell you how to do this. Yeah, have you heard that phrase before? Peter saying, be alert, be sober minded. Here it is again. Back in, in 113. Yeah, that was that, remember the, the word picture we talked about of being sober minded means to gird up your loins or pick up the loose ends of your robe that are slowing you down and dragging you down, but pick them up and like tuck them into your girdle, gird your loins so you can move forward and move forward fast. Now in the context of this patches, passage, he's talking about a specific part of our thinking and a specific part of our life in girding up the loins. Yeah, he's making a reference here to our passions and to our lusts. He is taking things seriously, being aware, not only in the time of the importance that we're not mindful of time and present right now, but being sober-minded and in the outcomes for eternity. Like our decision to follow Christ as an eternal, I need to be sober-minded. In that, in that sober-minded, he's talking about a, a clear mind, a saved mind. I think sazo is the Greek word there for that first part in the, in the Greek, but we don't have the time to go through all that today, but what it is, it is a saved mind, a mind of Christ. Christ-like is where we see that. And so in that, the sober saints in life, you and I as believers, right, not as a, this is not as a joke, it's not a hoax, this is real life. This is, Christ went to the cross for us, okay, but as a serious matter for which is answerable to God. That one day we will stand in front of him. We'll answer because we have the advocate, but Christ Jesus in all of that. But let us not become intoxicated. He's given us a forewarning in that. And the three vintage wines of, of Satan, of the devil. That we see that there are a lust of the eyes, a lust of the flesh. And to be of the boastful pride of life. Like we get so wrapped up in those things that we forget Christ inside of us. Keeping our eye on the prize. Moving forward for the upper calling of Christ Jesus in our life. We see that even in, in Genesis where that was, he's not been playing this game. I mean, he's been doing this for a while. Yeah, so the, that's definitely a, um, important for the, the believer who now has the mind of Christ, who now knows that we have been made alive in the spirit in him, um, to be reminded, and he's reminding these, like, haven't you had enough? Why would you want to go back to that way of living? Don't fall into that temptation even though things are tough. But continue to be steadfast, continue to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And he says this phrase, it's now the second time we've seen it in this book, for the sake of your prayers. Um, in other words, just very simply, he's just saying, hey, don't be under any illusions that you can have right. like a, a wild, untethered, rebellious lifestyle. And yet at the same time have a thriving, meaningful prayer relationship with God. Not saying God's abandoned you, but if you're going to abandon him... Don't think, that you, don't think that your prayer life is going to be as rich and meaningful as it has been. So run towards prayers. Run towards communion with the Lord. And he's going to give a ranking order in all this. Like we, we are to run to Christ. Even in, the, in our midst of our times of being sober-minded, running to the cross. 
Um, you'll speak to this here in a moment, but he's going to go right here in verse 8, and he's going to put these things in order. So if you're really listening, like this, I think this is the hinging part of this scripture is what we're about to talk about in this book. He says, above all. Like this is, this is a ranking. He's ranking what all of this he's talking about, sober-minded, that here's the, here's the end, it's coming out, but above all. So listen to what I'm about to say, above all, comma, as Peter's writing this. Remember, he's writing this as encouragement for endurance. Not for a short period, not for you to run the 100 meters, but for the marathon. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This phrase, above all, is a reminder of the pr- priority of love among God's people, amongst us. You can take this now, as I go through this next piece of this conversation, just in your mind, just think, all the things that are going on in our society tonight that have been going on for the years. As a believer, if I laid these up, if I throw these up against these issues, if I throw this up against what's going on in our time and our life, love is a condition, hear me out, it is essential, it is a qualification. Love is condition to all the proper exercises of our Christian duty. It is essential to our Christian duty. It is a qualification to our Christian duty. Courtesy without love is very cold. Generosity without love is a very harsh thing. Servanthood without love is empty. The love of Christ, not the emotional love, but we're talking about an agape type love. We're talking about the love that Christ took to the cross for us. Love makes all these other virtues, it makes them very shallow. It makes them very empty. They would not be. The love of Christ before all these other things. Love of Christ. The love of Christ. That is our badge. That is, as believers, that is, that is what we wear when we do all things in love. Above all these things, he's ranking this, right? Especially in these times of testing, these times of persecution, Christians need to love one another to be united at heart. Why? He's going to tell us in this next section. Why? Because love covers, after he says above all, he says because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers so as not to harshly condemn or to expose our faults, but to, but to bear one another's burdens. All right, we've heard this before. We flip back to Galatians. You don't have to with me this morning. I'm just going to give a nod to it. But he says, to bear one another's burdens, forgiving and forgetting our past offenses. We hear this, that it is, we run to these things. Galatians, he starts it out and he says, brothers and sisters. Because only brothers and sisters, only believers are going to know this love of Christ. This Christ-like mindset. And so he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, he says, you are to live you are to live by the you those sorry let me try this one more time <laughs> you who live by the spirit should restore you should rescue accountability with that person gently he doesn't say harshly he doesn't say i saw such and such do such and such today post he says to do this gently he says that we are to Watch out for ourselves that we may also be tempted. But he says this in verse 2 of Galatians 3, or excuse me, Galatians 5. Carry each other's burdens, their heavy weight. 
And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. As we do those things, not in our own selves. Chris Taylor doesn't do it. Old Chris Taylor, the one prior to meeting Dustin in those years prior to that, my reputation was not a reputation of someone sitting on the stage, not even walking into this facility, not even walking into this building. Because he had told God I wasn't going to do these three things. And God's funny sense of humor is I am now doing all these three things. What were the three things? Um, I'd never remarry. I'd never get married again. Uh, and then, um, I'm not sure that the hand motion was appropriate. Yeah, well, you were not supposed to call that out. I was like, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, that was awkward. Okay. Uh, and then he said, um, and then I said, I would never have children. At that point in my life, I had one daughter. God has blessed us with five that had fallen up under our home, but a student ministry with hundreds and hundreds as we did ministry together. And the last thing I promised God I would never, ever do again, I'm sitting in front of you doing now. And he's walked inside of another one of his churches, another one of his houses. But I'm telling you right here, right now, sitting in this room, it was not Chris Taylor. It's not the Chris Taylor program. It, didn't, it kept me straight and clean for six weeks. But it's Christ inside of us. That is the completed work. It's a Christ-like mind. Because he came to save me when he died on the cross. And the moment that I was on my knees, I'm standing in the back of the church and I can hear just over and over the words washing over me like, like a wave, perseverance, perseverance for the long haul, that he will one day come to save me. He will return. He will gather up his children. But in the midst of all this, he's continuing to save me, to walk me through. It is that Christ-like love that I constantly trying to mature in my mind that it is that is the completed work that he is doing inside of my life it is and it, it shows up in some different ways and so he goes on to teach us in this passage some additional thoughts along the lines of what it looks like for love to be displayed in our lives and he says these next words he says show hospitality to one another without grumbling and if you just read that at surface value would think okay part of the way i need to show love to people is be hospitable you know invite them into our home serve, whatever the case is. And yeah, that's true, but the word that he chooses for hospitality here is kind of interesting, a little bit different than what I would have originally expected. He chooses a word that I can't really pronounce, but it's something like this, philoxenos, uh, philoxenos, which is a word that literally means to show love to strangers. That's what he means by hospitality. So he knows that our natural propensity to know that, all right, well, if God is love and he's displayed it to me and he wants to display it through me, a lot of times we think our first impulse is to think about the people that are in our immediate right now circle. But he says, oh yeah, don't stop there, by the way, but be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So extend that love also to philoxenos, to strangers that are outside your circle that don't walk, talk, and act and look like you. Mm. Because this is how far the love of Christ went. And this is how far he intends to display it through your life. And if we looked at this Last little section here we're talking about is kind of like a, if I did a graph, it looked something like a pyramid. Um, Jesus' suffering was enough to pay the debt of our sins so that we might receive his life as ours. We might be made alive in the spirit. That's the pinnacle of all of this, the great and finished work of Jesus. And then from there he says, because of the finished work of Jesus, well, God is love, so he's going to display love through you. That would be the next layer of the pyramid. Um, 
And so, but by the way, don't just stop at the people you already love. That's easy. No, the love of Christ extends even to strangers, people that don't walk, talk, and act like you. And then he goes on as an additional layer, kind of the, I don't know if this will be the pinnacle or the foundation of the conversation. He says, in God, Jesus has actually placed in you some specific gifts that come from him. They are his character deposited into you to be on full display. And he goes on to say, as each one has received a gift, verse 10, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength of, that God supplies. In order that in everything, you're not getting the glory. But God's going to get the glory through Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now He gives these couple of examples. Your speaking gifts and your serving gifts. Obviously these aren't exhaustive lists, but they're categories. They're categories of the way that Jesus has deposited his life into every believer. Some of you have the gift of preaching and teaching and knowledge and wisdom. You know, it's, it's the speaking gifts. And some of you have the gift of serving gifts, hospitality and generosity and just serving in general. And he's like, these are meant to be specific displays of the life of Jesus in your life. And here is... Um, you know, for me, my whole life, and I still succumb to this temptation all the time, when I hear something like this, I hear it as if it was meant to me as an individual, and I need to figure out how to carry it out as an individual. You know, over the course of this weekend, there will be somewhere between twelve to 1,500 folks that are going to listen to this conversation that we're having right now. And most people are going to be hearing these words that we're saying as, okay, I get it. God wants to display his love through me in my life through the gifts that he's given me and the people that he's placed in my life, both people in my close circle and strangers. And those who are really leaning in are going to make the effort to go out and try to be Jesus to the world. But did you know that most of the Bible was not, most of the Bible was not written to individuals, it was written to groups of people? Even this letter. It wasn't written to or sent to an individual Christian. It was sent to all of them in the first century of ancient Rome. And so when we're reading things like this through the word of God, Peter didn't mean for us to hear it as an individual and try to figure out how to carry it out as individuals. He meant for us to hear it as a group and put it into play as a group. Imagine, just imagine. If 1,500 people that are hearing this conversation this weekend really got pricked in the heart by God and said, all right, I'm going I'm to really just invite Jesus to live out his perfect love through my life. What if 1,500 people in a county of 100,000 went out and did that? It would probably cause some pretty significant waves in our community. But what if all 1,500 heard it as a group and then decided to carry it out as a group? As one body of many parts, what if that would happen? How much more significant, how much more powerful that would be? Here's an example of how I describe the power of us hearing it in community and living in community and on mission together for the work of Jesus. Um, Chris, did you know that uh, a draft horse, which is like Clydesdale, like on the Budweiser commercials, I know we're probably I've not supposed them. to talk about beer in church, but that's the best example I knew how to give. You know, the big, the big horses on the Budweiser commercials around Christmas time. That's a draft horse. 
Um, you know that one giraffe horse can pull up to 8,000 pounds that's by himself. That's a lot of weight. Yeah, that's a lot of that's horsepower. Do <laughs> you get it, horsepower? Huh? Okay. Not enough love from y'all right now. Not enough love. No. One giraffe horse can pull 8,000 pounds. So now yeah. I want you to put your thinking cap on, Seaburn High School. Okay. Put your thinking cap on. Do the math. One horse can pull 8,000 pounds. How many pounds can two horses pull? I'm Carry the one, divide by I'm six. How many? Divide by six. Do the math, Chris. I'm carrying it. Two draft horses can pull how much? I've got my answer. What is it? 16,000. Wrong. Dang. One draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. Two draft horses pulling together can pull 24,000 pounds. Is that not crazy? Isn't that crazy? That just blows your mind. It's, it's, it's an illustration of the testament of the power of working together in community and on mission. If 1,500 people hear this as individuals and try to carry it out, it'll make a pretty significant impact. If 1,500 people hear this as a family of God and carry it out as a family of God everywhere that they live, work, and play, this community would never be the same again. Right. Never be the same again. So what's, what's the whole point of this whole section that we've looked at as Peter's given us this contrast of former living and what, what we can accomplish through the life of Christ now. Like, here, here's the point, Grace Bible, is this is Jesus yet again through the Apostle Peter calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we might be the very vessel, the very vehicle that God has chosen to use to display his love and his mercies to the world. Like, that sounds like really churchy talk, and you hear us say those phrases all the time, and you've heard us say it 30 times in this conversation. So I would bet that in this room we have probably gotten desensitized to this very clear and specific calling and this, this beautiful invitation that's been given to us that God intends to display his love through us so that the world might know that he is God and that Jesus is the one and only Savior. But, but let me just make sure that everybody's getting this, whether you're watching online or here in person. Like, here's, here's the deal. What if this afternoon you get a phone call from some distant relative that's a multi-billionaire? That would be cool. And this distant relative now has had this revelation. They've just come to this conclusion. All right, I've lived a good life. I'm filthy rich. But you know what? I got this great, great nephew twice removed named Dustin and he calls me up and he says Dustin I have decided that I want to show the world just how vast my wealth is and I have chosen you to not only distribute my wealth but to be a display of it I'm like sign me up homeboy that sounds good to me you're gonna drive all my cars you're gonna live in my fancy house you're going to take vacations on my yacht and my private jets. You're going to write the big philanthropy checks and be on the front page of the news. Like, I'm going to display my wealth through you. You're going to be a living, breathing example of how vast my wealth is. Sounds pretty exciting. That's really exciting. How much deeper, how much higher, how much greater is the breadth and depth and height and vastness of the mercies and the love of God that he has invited us as his people to be the living display and distributors of the love of God that the world might know just how glorious and how rich his mercies are for them. 
Like this is what he's called us into. This is the picture that Peter paints for us that we might realize, God, I don't want to live for me anymore. I've done that enough. And I've come up short over and over and over again. But the vastness of your love and mercy has been displayed to me in my life. And I've received it as my own. You are my God and my King and my Lord and my Savior. And I'm giving my life over to you. That you might display and distribute that incredible love through me. It's not my love, it's yours. But my life is yours to display it through. Yes, sign me up for that. Chris, would you pray for us? You know, and in that, I'm a more alive now, today, living for Christ than I was living for self my whole, all, prior to Christ, all my I life. I can hear that. a lot of hearts probably saying amen who yeah. relate yeah. to that. It just, I didn't say that in any of the other services. It yeah. just, it just. 11.30 always gets a little extra mojo. A little, a, little, a little more love. Church family, let's pray. Father, we know that the end of all things is near, and we know that you have done a completed work through your son, Jesus Christ, that we are to be alert and to be sober-minded in all things, that we may pray for the love, for a deep love above all, that the world will see you inside of us with our Christ-like mind, that not that the race just not, did not begin, the marathon did not begin the day that we accepted Christ, that the day we decided to follow Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, it just started the marathon. Step one, step two. So to be encouraged through our endurance as we continue to press forward for the upper calling of Christ Jesus in our life, may we offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. May we receive others May we be faithful stewards of God's grace, whether we speak it or whether we're doing it through service, with a love, as Peter says, above all, so that it's not empty, not empty words, not empty, empty acts of service. Our courtesy is not empty, but it is you. May we be a reflection of you in all that we are and all that we do. We ask all this in the great and mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.